And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including hosts Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Welcome. I'm Tom Laurie, and I will be your host today. Thank you for joining us. Former General Electric CEO Jack Welch, who passed away in 2020, is considered by many to be the greatest CEO of the 20th century. His legacy, while at the helm of GE, includes 20 years of consistent earnings increasing the market value of GE to $600 billion from, I believe, around $14 billion, and creating numerous innovations in energy generation, material science, medical imaging, broadcasting, and much more, and the development of an incredible executive alumni who went on to be CEOs of other companies like Honeywell. What made GE and Jack unique at this point in time? And how strong was GE when Jack left? Joining me today to discuss this is William D. Cohen, best-selling author of Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon, which details the history of GE with an emphasis on the Welch and Immelt years and its collapse. Power Failure is the best book I have read in years. It is a page-turner and should be read by anyone with executive ambitions. It fills a critical gap, not touched by any MBA program that I know of. Bill, welcome to The Mentors. And I'm excited to have you as my guest. This is very different, uh, having an author of a, bi- of a biography, uh, but you have done so much research and uh, it is so thorough. I feel you probably know these people firsthand, like you're part of the family. We, we have a lot to talk about, but welcome. Well, thank you, Tom. And um, I really appreciate the kind words uh, that you shared about the book. And hopefully I can do a little mentoring here today. So GE was valued at $14 billion in 1981 when Welch took the reins from Reginald Jones, and it was valued at $600 billion when Welch retired 20 years later in 2001. Do you consider Welch uh, to be the greatest CEO of the 20th century as so many others? Well, you know, I'm not trying to sell magazines like uh, Fortune uh, was when they said he was you know, the greatest uh, manager of the 20th century. Uh, Look, I don't know, uh, you know, that's the greatest is, of course, a superlative. Um, He certainly was uh, one of the best uh, CEOs of the of the 20th century. And just in terms of uh, creating shareholder value, I think, you know, he actually took over uh, when the stock value of the company, the market value of the company was around $12 billion. And probably in August of 20, uh, of 19, uh, of 2000, August of 2000, it was around $650 billion. So he took it from 12 to $650 billion. I'd say that's a uh, pretty extraordinary uh, performance. Uh, you know, I think it has been uh, exceeded only by uh the uh, uh the ceo of uh of apple uh who uh, took over 
uh, after Steve Jobs, when the stock was worth about the company was worth about three hundred billion, and now it's worth about two and two and a half trillion. So um, uh, that's better than Jack. But uh, you know, until that, then uh, Jack is, I think, you know, purely from a shareholder value uh, point of view, uh, certainly was got to rank up there as one of the best uh, CEOs of the twentieth century. And you yourself have a little history with uh, GE as an employee, don't you? Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I um, had been a, a journalist, uh, I'd gone to Columbia Journalism School, and then uh, was a reporter uh, at a daily paper in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, and uh, my uh, father had in his head that I should go to business school. I didn't really want to go to business school, but uh, he thought it would be a great idea uh, if I went to business school uh, because I was not getting very paid very much as a reporter in Raleigh. And I thought it would be an okay idea to go to business school because I really wanted to get a job at the Wall Street Journal. And I figured if I'd gone to journalism school and business school and I'd won some awards uh, in North Carolina, that it would be uh, uh, the Wall Street Journal would have no choice uh, but to hire me, but um, they actually turned out did have a choice. They did not hire me, and so after I graduated uh, from with Columbia with my MBA in 1987, uh, since I couldn't get a job at the Wall Street Journal, I could get a job on Wall Street because all you had to bre- do uh, in May of 1987 to get a job on Wall Street was be able to, you know, fog a mirror and. Uh, I had a number of different places I could have gone to, but I uh, decided that there was something about GE Capital and what it was doing uh, and what they wanted me to do, which was finance leverage buyouts that I found really intriguing. And I thought, okay, this is truly absurd, uh, just indicative of where the financial markets are, that a guy who had been a journalist uh, for a number of years can go and get his MBA and somehow be transformed into somebody who can uh, finance leverage buyouts. So uh, I spent a year financing leverage buyouts of all things uh, at GE Capital in New York, and then I got promoted to go work with the chief credit officer in Stanford uh, at GE Capital and and ended up being his analyst and seeing uh, how everything uh, at GE Capital worked, which uh, was fascinating. Uh, and then uh, after that, I went to Lazard, uh, where I was an M&A banker, and uh, Merrill, and then J.P. Morgan Chase until uh, for the next you know, 15 years after GE Capital. And you wrote a book about Lazard that became a bestseller that put you on the path to writing books, right? So that's right. After I uh, left uh, Wall Street in 2004. I was uh, relieved of my duties uh, and decided, uh, you know, what can I do now? Uh, I didn't want a boss. I wanted to be more creative. Um, and, uh, you know, I wanted to uh, have my own equity, which I thought was really important, uh, Tom. And um, uh, I thought the best way to do that would be to write a book. I thought, well, what could I write a book about? And I decided that, you know, Lazard, where I had worked for six years and which was a private partnership and uh, very interesting history 
and a bit mysterious uh, would be the thing to write about because it was undergoing tremendous amount of change at that point uh, in the early 2000s. And so uh, I don't know what got into me, frankly. Uh, I thought I could write a book. I hadn't written anything in 20 years, but I sat down and wrote a book and it became a bestseller. And it was named the uh, 2007 uh, Business Book of the Year by the FT and Goldman Sachs. And the title of that book was The Last Tycoon? The Last Tycoons, plural, The Secret History of Lazard Frere and Company. And we'll make a note of that on our show notes for those people that would be interested in uh, following up and getting a copy, as we will with uh, Power Failure. So we're going to be right back with William Cohen, the author of Power Failure, about the rise and fall of GE. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com, and click on a list of shows to listen to past shows. Subscribe while you're there so you don't miss any future shows. This is Tom Laurie, and you're listening to The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and I am with William D. Cohen, author of Power Failure, which is about the rise and fall of America's iconic General Electric. And we're emphasizing today on the Jack Welch years, the Jeff Immelt years, and its downfall uh, that was triggered, I believe, by an activist investor, although there were some fundamentals, which we'll talk about, that got to that point. Um, Remember, you can also listen to this show on any previous show via podcast on iTunes, TuneIn, Spotify, Google, and more on any device, anytime. Subscribe at TheMentorsRadio.com. So let's talk just a second now about Jeff Immelt, who followed uh, Jack. And we're going to get into a lot more detail on each of them and hopefully share lessons that people can learn from their styles of management. So when Immelt left, GE lost what I He was there 16 years as the CEO. He became CEO at the age of 45. And when he left, GE had dropped about $150 billion in value and also was uh, dropped from the Dow Jones Index. And uh, what were the challenges that Immelt faced coming in after uh, Welch? Depends uh, depends on who you ask, uh, frankly, Tom. I mean, uh, uh, Jack uh, Welch uh, told me uh, that he felt he had left uh, Jeff Immelt, the Royal Flush, uh, to play. I think uh, uh, Jeff uh, didn't see it that way. So uh, I think you know if you're if you're if I'm looking at it from Jeff's perspective, he would say you know Jack left me with uh, a bunch of insurance companies uh, that I didn't like uh, and that I wanted to get rid of. Uh, he left me with a company that was. Uh, overly uh, dependent on financial services through G, G Capital, and that I really needed to uh, diversify uh, the business back uh, to more of an industrial orientation, uh, and that it was sort of uh, you know mired uh, in you know literally a different uh, a different century, and uh, you know he needed to modernize it, um, and uh, you know. Uh, sort of think of how GE was going to uh, tackle the new century. From a mentoring standpoint, what can you tell us about the difference and effectiveness of Welch's style of management or leadership and uh, Immelt's? Well, I think um, obviously they're different personalities. Jack was um, 
a very uh, gregarious, um, uh, a, a tremendous amount of personality, uh, uh, you know, an intense sort of overachiever, very competitive. Um, and uh, even though he uh, made decisions quickly and decisively, um, he also made room uh, for uh, dissenting uh, opinions. Uh, he would go into a meeting, uh, you know, should we uh, uh, start CNBC? Should we uh, buy, uh, you know, this bankrupt financial news uh, network and then, you know, pack it, repackage it and turn it into uh, CNBC? And uh, I think, you know, you know, Jack uh, had the ability to... Uh, make a decision uh, uh, in his mind and then be uh, persuaded to change that decision uh, if uh, a, a strong argument was made. Uh, and uh, there were repeated examples of that. He uh, also, uh, you know, developed these tight bonds with uh, his the underlings, the people who reported to him and the people elsewhere in the organization. Even people, uh, Tom, who he fired, uh, and I think particularly of Dave Cody, who went on to become the CEO of Honeywell, uh, and Honeywell uh, was actually worth more than GE uh, for a period of time. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, Jack uh, fired Dave when Dave was running the uh, major appliance division in Louisville. Uh, he really didn't give Dave much of a reason for why he was being fired. And then, uh, you know, Dave and Jack uh, remained friends throughout the rest of their life. And Dave was one of the pallbearers at Jack's funeral. And I found that uh, repeatedly. People who had worked for Jack or intersected with Jack just had this incredible devotion to him. Uh, Jeff, uh, you know, had a very different pedigree, Dartmouth and Harvard Business School. Um, I think probably was... Uh, not any uh, more uh, uh, covetous of the uh, perks of being the CEO of GE, but I think uh, sort of displayed more of an imperial uh, CEO type of behavior. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you of course, infamously, you know, had that second jet uh, uh, that uh, traveled with him around the world for uh, a big stretch of time something that he uh, couldn't even bring himself to really admit. Uh, eventually, he did admit to me that he had um, uh, knew about it and, uh, you know, knew that it was happening. Um, I think that he was uh, less open than Jack was to dissenting opinions. Um, you know, he kept trying to stress with me repeatedly that uh, he kept the best people uh, around him at GE uh, throughout his tenure. But in fact, I found example after example of people who had uh, disagreed uh, with Jeff or crossed Jeff or, or didn't uh, share his view of a particular um, a strategic uh, initiative uh, who soon found themselves uh, out the door. Uh, I didn't really find a whole lot of people who uh, had the same sort of uh, personal uh, devotion uh, to Jeff as, as they had to Jack. Now, you know, that I think is more, you know, 
uh, personality driven than anything else. Uh, you know, on the other hand, as we talked about before, Jack, uh, uh, you know, took over the company was worth twelve billion and brought it to six hundred fifty uh, billion. Uh, created incredible wealth for shareholders and employees and himself and sort of everybody who came in contact with GE. Uh, obviously, when Jeff took over, it kind of went the other way for a long period of time. And so a lot of people lost a lot of money uh, owning GE under Jeff's uh, leadership. And so that creates, uh, you know, a different um, mood and tenor about his uh, leadership uh, abilities. Now, we you touched on it, but Jack really came from a hard scrabble background, didn't he? Yeah, Jack was an only child, uh, sort of lower middle class. His father was a train conductor on the uh, train that went from Boston uh, to the North Shore of Massachusetts. Uh, uh, his mother was a uh, stay-at-home mom. Um, you know, his father was somewhat distant. He was totally devoted to his mother. Uh, you know, he's, he worked as a caddy growing up. He was, you know, somehow was a pretty good athlete, even though he was not very big. Um, went to UMass uh, in Amherst and then uh, got his PhD in, uh, uh, you know, nuclear chemistry, I guess, uh, in uh, at the University of Illinois uh, and then uh, uh, got his first job uh, at GE after rejecting uh, a path of being a professor. He, he you know, uh, he I think the university wanted him to think about being a professor and Jack wanted to get into business. So we're going to be right back with William D. Cohen, author of Power Failure about the rise and fall of GE. Remember, you can listen live to our Saturday broadcast anywhere in the world by going to San Francisco 860 The Answer. This is Tom Laurie and this is The Mentors Radio Show. And now... Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie, and I'm with William D. Cohan, the author of Power Failure, which is about the rise and fall of America's iconic General Electric, with an emphasis on the Jack Welch years, the Jeff Immelt years, and its downfall. So you talked a little bit about the styles of management of the two people. And I'm I'm going to guess if you were to work for one of them, you'd prefer to work for Jack. Is that a fair guess? Well, I did work for Jack. I'll be down about 10. Right. Later. Right. Um, well, look, I, I mean, I'm sure Jack was, a, you know, could be a son of a bitch, if I may use that phrase uh, uh, on the podcast. Uh, you know, I think they both could. I mean, you don't get to the top of these organizations uh, by... Um, not doing what you have to do. Uh, you know, I worked on Wall Street for 17 years. I found that, that people on Wall Street could be incredibly charming when they wanted to be and ruthless when they have to be. And I have to assume that uh, Jack and Jeff were the same way. Um, you know, based on my reporting about people who worked for both of them, uh, it seemed that uh, Jack was a lot more fun uh, to work for. And he was uh, early in his career, which stayed with him throughout his career, called Neutron Jack. But in the book, you talk about there was something that took place where he realized he wasn't as uh, 
um, good with the people. And there created a change, didn't it, somewhere early in his career? Well, I mean, I think he went into GE when he took it over from Reginald Jones and he found, you know, of course, he wanted to do things his way. He thought it had become too bureaucratic. bureaucratic. There were just too many layers, uh, too many people. So he became, he called Neutron Jack, of course, because he got rid of, you know, something like 100,000 people. Uh, and, you know, the buildings were left standing, of course. And so, of course, he hated that name. Um, and uh, so uh, eventually, you know, he preferred being uh, referred to as, you know, the greatest manager of the 20th century, uh, no doubt, and, uh, you know, great uh, shareholder uh, advocate and creator of value. Um, you know, I think that uh, Jack, um, again, like every CEO you would expect, and I mean, and Jack was there for the long haul. I mean, 20 years as CEO, and, and Jeff was uh, uh, expected to be there for 20 years as well. He only made it to 17. But I mean, so these are these were sort of um, generational leadership decisions that were being made by GE because GE was, you know, as I said in the subtitle, an iconic American company. And so what GE did, whether it was the way it selected its CEO or the way uh, the company was run or the kinds of businesses that the company were w was was in and the kind of people who came through there and came out of there these this was like the Bible these, you know Harvard Business School couldn't get enough uh, GE case studies uh, and you know GE had Crotonville uh, on the Hudson uh, where of course it uh, 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 mentored uh, the future uh, leaders of American capitalism. Uh, and so what GE did uh, in pretty much every way mattered to the rest of corporate America. Um, and so Jack wanted to put his uh, uh, stamp on that and I think was very effective in doing that. Just tuned in. This is Tom Lurie. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show. We're with author William Cohen, who is sharing some behind-the-scene insights on GE's Jack Welch, Jeff Immelt, and others. Crotonville. Tell our audience a little bit about Crotonville. Because I, as you know, I uh, worked at American Hospital Supply. We created our own Crotonville. But I let everyone know what Crotonville was all about. So, Tom, uh, the current GE uh, leadership uh executive office uh, agreed to work with me uh, for exactly one day on, on this book. Uh, and in that day, they allowed me to go to Crotonville and to uh, GE's research center in Niskayuna, New York, uh, uh, near Albany. And so I, you know, as I, as we talked about, I'd worked at GE Capital for two years. Uh, I was never asked to go to Crotonville. I was never on like a anything resembling, I was young, but I was never on anything resembling a, a management uh, track. And uh, so this was my first visit to Crotonville, something I'd heard about for decades. And I was very excited to go there. And it was really remarkable. I mean, it really uh, is a, a refuge, an enclave, uh, you know, very special, you know, be beautiful sort of architecture, welcoming, uh, you know, lots of people around to make you feel at home. Uh, you know, I just thought it was almost like a, you know, a high end, you know, college campus, small college campus. Uh, 
and uh, it was it was great. I was glad that I saw it with my own eyes before uh, they have now since uh, decided to sell it. I don't know that I've heard that they have succeeded in selling it, but they have uh, put it on the market. And of course, I said after that one day, they no longer cooperated with me. But at least I got to see both of those facilities, both of which were incredibly impressive. And most most impressive about Grotenville was it's a leadership training center, wasn't it? A leadership development. They brought in outside speakers. Right? You name it. I mean, it was like uh, management consulting on steroids. I mean, you know, it's like the the best uh, thinkers on on business, on industry, on on in sports, all sorts of disciplines that you can imagine to try to develop this very select group of GE's top managements to prepare them to, obviously only one of them would be taking over GE and the rest of them would sort of go out into corporate America, which they did very effectively and, uh, uh, you know, lead other companies, which may or may not do business with GE. And one of the strengths, at least for me, and uh, I knew of it, but you certainly document his ability of Jack to really develop future leaders. Oh, I mean, it's, it was, uh, you know, I, I make the comparison with the uh, Coach K coaching tree, you know, the, the you know, Mike Krzyzewski, Dukes, uh, uh, the, 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 this tentacles in, uh, in the coaching world. And uh, Jack had that same uh, success uh in corporate america where people would uh leave ge especially top executives and go out and become the ceos of other companies they companies they were highly sought after and highly recruited by uh, uh headhunters uh you know the, the top headhunters so uh one of the things i learned along the way is that uh your greatest legacy are the people that you develop and what they go on and do and i also learned that uh, having outstanding leaders leave a company is not all a bad thing because you make room if you have a good uh, talent line, you keep moving people up. And that's uh, fortunately what I was able to see firsthand at uh, American Hospital Supply, which is now Baxter. So I I mean, I'm really into that. I, I saw that in play and a lot of strong leaders uh, were developed as a result. And one of the things that really differentiate the GE under Welch, and I I suspect between Welch and, or, and Emil, is that Jack was more of a decentralized guy. He, it seems like Emelt was more of a centralized guy. Is that a fair assessment? Well, I mean, you know, they both uh, liked their corporate offices. I mean, uh, you know, I think Larry Culp, the current CEO, is the ultimate decentralized uh, a guy. Uh, uh, you know, he, of course, had been the CEO of Danaher, which is a mini uh conglomerate a sort of a mini ge with a, a vastly decentralized organization sort of along the lines of Berkshire hathaway um uh, ironically you know danaher is now worth more than ge or or was last time i checked uh uh i think you know jack had the big corporate office in fairfield there was so there was nothing small about that there was nothing uh that was plenty imperial uh jeff enjoyed that as well and then he you know moved things to boston um where he you know uh was in the process of creating quite uh an imperial headquarters that ultimately got scrapped and then they're essentially abandoning boston um so uh you know i think you know ge being the ceo ge was 
uh, uh, certainly during the the last forty years, uh, you know, uh, from nineteen eighty to say you know two thousand seventeen when Jeff uh, got um, uh, fired, uh, I I think that was an you know a time of uh, you know imperial uh, imperial CEOs uh, were sort of at the peak, uh, and uh, you know GE was. Uh, Jack and Jeff, you know, loved their perks, loved their big offices, loved their, you know, private bathrooms and their uh, carpeted, uh, you know, Persian carpets. I mean, and their private jets. I mean, it was if you were the CEO of GE, you could uh, pick up the phone and call anybody in the world at any time and get your call returned. We're going to be right back. We're with William D. Cohen. This is Tom Laurie, and this is the Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Laurie. I'm with William D. Cohan, the author of Power Failure, which is about the rise and fall of America's iconic General Electric. So you were talking about, uh, we were talking about decentralization and centralization, but one of the, maybe were both Jack and Jeff uh, people that gave those under them and the organization a lot of freedom to act? I think uh, you were free to act as long as you made your numbers, Tom. So, no, make your numbers, you're free to act. Miss your numbers, you, you know, the wrath of the corner office is coming down on you. And with the various the two different styles and how they ran the company, how would you compare and contrast the culture at GE under Welch versus the culture under Immelt? You know, again, I, I I was there under Jack, so I know what that was like. Sort of mid Jack, I was there, and um, uh, it was a very uh, commercial. Uh, you know. Do deals. I mean, we were encouraged to do lots of deals, do bring lots of opportunities up uh, uh, to Stanford to get them approved. And, um, you know, a lot of perks, a lot of funky perks. I mean, uh, uh, you know, there'd be all these, there'd be golf outings and uh, boat uh, trips and uh, trips, you know, around the world. Even if you were sort of not... um, uh, you know, there was like a platinum trip and a gold trip, a silver trip. So you didn't even have to be the best, but you got to go on a uh, on a trip. Uh, when I was promoted uh, to go work with the chief credit officer, Jim Fischel in Stanford, and I was re- reverse commuting between Manhattan and Stanford, you know, they got me a car, uh, my own car, uh, to do that uh, trip. Um, so, you know, I think that there was like, a, a, you know, while always being focused on the bottom line uh there was seemed to be a lot of money sloshing around um under jack uh under jeff obviously i wasn't working there then um again it was still a very big very powerful very wealthy uh company uh for most of those years uh, until things started going wrong uh so uh i suspect that um again if you uh, made your numbers. Uh, you were in Jeff's good graces. If you agreed with Jeff, you were in Jeff's good graces. Um, and I think um, 
you know, if you didn't, uh, uh, you know, your career could be uh, curtailed. Uh, he, you know, again, Jeff comes across as a very gregarious, uh, very hail fellow, well met. He's from the, you know, the Midwest. Um, uh, played football at Dartmouth. Uh, was a frat guy at Dartmouth. Uh, but again, I think um, m- more focused on uh, doing things his way. Um, you know, he had big ambitions and big thoughts, and had you know big sweeping um, uh, ideas and initiatives. And if you agreed with them, uh, it was great. And if you didn't, you know, uh, if you voiced that, you could find yourself, uh, you know, your your career was cut short. But Jack was a little different. He appreciated dissent, right? Well, that that that's what everybody, uh, you know, told me. I never had an audience with, with him directly where I was dissenting. Uh, uh, you know, and again, when I was interviewing him many times, uh, in in the two years that I was reporting the book before he died, uh, uh, you know, he was very frank and very open with me, surprisingly so, you know, even to the point where before I sat down at our very first lunch meeting where uh, we were going to talk about this book and what I was thinking about doing, he told me that he thought he had made a big, you know, the biggest mistake of his career was choosing Jeff Immelt as his successor. Now that is extremely frank and open talk from uh, you know, one of the most respected uh, CEOs of the 20th century. And what what do, you, what do you think it was that Jack was chasing throughout his life? Oh, he was just hyper competitive, Tom. He he wanted to win. He wanted GE to be the best. You know, don't forget his mantra. You know, in his first talk to research analysts was. Uh, we want GE to be uh, the businesses GE is in have to be either number one or number two in their industry. And if they aren't, we get out of them. And if they are, we add to them. Uh, or if we can do a deal like, uh, you know, buying RCA, which gets us in to being, uh, you know, one or two in an industry like uh, you know broadcast media, then we will then we will do that. Uh, he was very competitive. He, you know, if he said we're going to make a certain amount of earnings every quarter you could be sure that he was going to do everything in his power uh to to come through on that and he expected everybody to uh overachieve in a sense and he kept overachieving he was a major league overachiever and he kept overachieving for basically the 20 years that he was running ge and you know earnings increased quarter after quarter after quarter, and so did the value of the company. And its PE expanded rapidly to kind of absurd levels, which, you know, was one of the challenges uh, Jeff Immelt had because he was handed a company with an industrial and a financial services company with a PE in the 40s that had been in the 60s. And, you know, neither uh, part of that business on its own would have had that high a PE. So the fact that as a conglomerate, as a combination, it had that PE. Uh, and don't forget, his first day in the office was September 10th, 2001. And, uh, you know, he was obviously faced with a very dramatic and different uh, macroeconomic environment uh, after 
So we're going to be right back with William D. Cohen, the author of Power Failure, about the rise and fall of GE. You will find all of our show notes and links to the books that we talk about at TheMentorsRadio.com. When you're there, make sure you subscribe so you do not miss any of our shows. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio Show. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Tom Loy, and I'm with William D. Cohen, the author of Power Failure, which is about the rise and fall of America's iconic General Electric, with an emphasis on the Jack Welch years, the Jeff Emmett years, and its downfall. So one of the uh, Jack had a couple of things that he emphasized. One uh, was the four E's: edge, execution, energy, and energize. Could you, in thirty seconds, give us a summary of what all that means? Well, you know, Jack liked his uh, aphorisms, I think. Um, you know, he was also a big proponent of, of Six Sigma uh, because mostly because his uh, partner and longtime associate, uh, Larry Bossidy, who had gone over to Allied Signal, uh, became a big fan of Six Sigma, which was really started by Motorola in this con- country after being adopted uh, by, from the Japanese. And, uh, you know, Jack insisted that everybody, you know, become Six Sigma fluent and they had to take courses in addition to everything else they were doing. And, he, you know, the, the, he would rank everybody at how good they were in Six Sigma, which was, of course, the idea of trying to reduce uh, errors in manufacturing, which he thought would lead to higher profitability. And, you know, he may or may not have been right. He may have been right. Um, but I don't think anybody really, uh, at least of all Jack, took it all that seriously. Um, you know, he, 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 so I think, you know, these four E's and the three S's and all these other things he did uh, were just, I think, tried ways that he had to boost morale, boost the team spirit. Uh, get everybody rowing together in the same direction, you know, all the uh, business cliches. And I think he he bought into that because uh, I think he was that kind of guy, uh, sort of a rah-rah guy. And, you know, he he had great instincts for how to get people to work together because he had been, you know, a team athlete and um, had excelled in team sports, despite being, you know, a little guy and, uh, you know, you wouldn't have thought that he would be a great athlete. And what do you think led to the fa- the downfall of GE and it's uh, being, sp- everything being spin out? Well, look, I think, um, you know, m- many, many factors uh, led to that. I think, uh, you know, Again, Jeff started one day before 9-11. Uh, uh, you know, soon, in, so in, in addition to grappling with that, which was a big deal at GE because GE had made the engines on the jets. Uh, GE had sell, uh, had reinsured several of the buildings down at the World, Tra- uh, World Trade Center. Uh, it owned NBC and NBC didn't have uh, ads, uh, you know, for a week or so, costing it, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, in revenue, uh, and then you know Sarbanes Oxley and uh, came along because of you know those various scandals at Enron and WorldCom and Adelphia and, and others, 
uh, global crossing. Uh, and so Jeff had a very different macroeconomic environment uh, than uh, uh, than Jack did. But uh, you know, to me, uh, and I've studied this very carefully. Uh, I go back to sort of what Dave Calhoun, who's now the CEO of Boeing, uh, told me uh, about the two men who he worked for, both of them. He said when Jack had a big decision to make, he uh, usually made the right decision. He did make the right decision. When Jeff had a the, uh, big decision to make, he made the wrong decision. Uh, and I think, you know, that's not a very... Uh, uh, gracious, but I do think that that's pretty accurate. Uh, you know, Jeff made some big mistakes by, you know, selling uh, uh, NBC Universal uh, after the financial crisis too cheaply and without an auction to Comcast. I think getting out of GE Capital was a huge mistake, huge mistake, uh, because after the financial crisis, uh, what industry made more money than any other? Uh, financial services. Uh, he made a huge mistake by bringing in Tryon Partners uh, because he thought they would be friendly. Uh, this hedge fund that was uh, where he knew uh, personally um, uh, Nelson Peltz's son-in-law because uh, 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 he had uh, grown up uh, with them and, and his brother uh, at Dartmouth. So he thought they would be benign, uh, but they weren't, and it cost him his job. Well, we're out of time. That's it till next week. Thank you, Bill, for sharing your insights on GE, Jack Welch, Jeff Immelt, and it's GE's fall. We've been with author William Kohan, author of Power Failure. We'll be posting links to Bill's books on our website, thementorsradio.com. When you're there, make it easy for yourself. Subscribe to future shows and listen to past episodes of The Mentors Radio. You can also listen to us online, any device, anytime, on any podcast platform. Join us next week at the same time for the next edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Tom Lord signing off today. Remember to be all you can be and keep the candle lit for all who struggle in the darkness. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.